spring we start at least a three-part series on the book of Esther. Uh, let me, for sake of time, just put the plow down and go as fast as I can go this morning. I need to give you some background and uh, ease you into this a little bit. So listen really carefully here in this first section to get oriented correctly to where we are in history and where we are in the Bible. For several weeks past now, I have spoken about moral dilemmas, and I've had many of you come and talk to me about those messages that I have uh, preached, and uh, you've mentioned the moral dilemmas that I brought up and maybe some moral dilemmas that you have faced. I know that resonates with all of us for, on, on many different levels for many di different reasons, because there are a lot of times in life where there is no good choice. It's like every choice is problematic. Uh, and you get put into a difficult situation. I wish I could stand here and honestly tell you as your pastor, every decision is going to be black and white. Do the right thing. But that's a very simplistic view of a complicated life that we live. And uh, that's not the way things really are. Some things are black and white and a whole lot of things are gray. And you try to make the best decision that you, you can make. In the past few weeks, as I've talked about uh, Rahab and Tamar, uh, two what the Bible calls righteous prostitutes. And I think both of those conversations were probably eye-opening for most of the con uh, congregation. Taken together with the third woman that I spoke about, Ruth, these three great women of the Old Testament were all idolaters. They were all outsiders. Uh, they were all Canaanites who made choices, decisions to be the people of God, that they would put their faith in God and they would forsake their idols and they would turn to the, the God of Israel and they would be a part of the people of God, even if it meant they had to live as outsiders among the people of God. And then I showed you in each story how eventually the outsider became an insider. Now, back to the decision problem. Each of us in our lives face decisions that are incredibly complex this is the human experience so if you're dealing with things this morning especially relational things career things health care things listen those are incredibly difficult decisions the story of Esther that we're going to get into is guidance for when we find ourselves in a situation where right and wrong are not clearly defined, this book helps us uh, understand that there are times in life where every choice seems like a mixture of both good and bad. When you find yourself in situations that you did not seek out, you never planned for, and quite frankly you don't think you have the skills to navigate, then you are instructed by the Lord in books like Esther to make the best decision you can make and then move forward with faith in God that he's going to handle the situation. The setting for the book of Esther, now I've been preaching from the book of Judges predominantly in the last few weeks. We're going to fast forward through the Old Testament several periods now. After the period of the Judges, Israel established a monarchy. They wanted a king. And so they chose King Saul, God chose then King David, and then Solomon, David's son, ruled after King David. Those were the first three kings of the monarchy of Israel. 
After King Solomon, after three kings, the kingdom divided in two at the death of Solomon and became a divided nation. Uh, The northern nation called itself Israel, and the southern nation called itself the kingdom of Judah. So when you hear the term divided kingdom, that's when the monarchy split and Israel became two nations. During those two, three hundred years of kings... In that divided kingdom, Israel's history is pretty simple. They went after idols. They constantly broke the covenant that they had made to be God's people at Sinai. They just kept violating it and kept going after idols. God had already promised them in Deuteronomy, if you break the covenant, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to punish you through these other nations. And God allowed King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon to invade in 586 B.C. It's an important time in your Bible Because when Babylon, the world superpower at the time, invades in 586, it becomes a turning point in your Bible, a turning point in Israel, a turning point in Judaism. And we leave the monarchy period now, and we go into the next period, which is exile. A lot of the books of your Old Testament, a lot of the Psalms, a lot of the prophets were written during the exile period. They're exiled into Babylon. And uh, Jerusalem was destroyed. The subjugation of God's people signaled the end of old, glorious Israel. This is why I say it's a big turning point. Jerusalem is gone. The temple is destroyed. The people are enslaved and taken back to Babylon. They're scattered to other nations as slaves. It's a turning point in biblical history. During the exile, they actually, God's people, became known by the term Jews. That's where the term comes from, in the exile Uh, Jews means from Judah, from the land they were taken. So the Jews now are captive in Babylon. That runs along for a couple of kings. And then the Babylonian Empire falls and the Medo-Persian Empire, modern-day Iran basically, but much bigger. The Persian Empire goes from, it's based in the Middle East, goes to India, down to North Africa, and all the way to the European mainland continent, covered three different continents. The Medo-Persian Empire uh, maintained dominance in the Middle East for uh, more than 200 years. So as old as your country is, Medo-Persian Empire ruled the world basically about that period of time. And then what happens next in 330, another couple of hundred years after they gained dominance, is Alexander the Great rose in the Battle of Isis, 330 B.C., Alexander the Great conquered Persia, and that was the next empire, the Greek empire that will lead us into the Roman Empire eventually and into the New Testament period. The events in the book of Esther take place in Persia, in the Medo-Persian Empire. Babylon has already fallen. Darius has already uh, uh, conquered. Cyrus has already given decrees, you know, that you can go rebuild Jerusalem. And the son, Xerxes, takes the throne in Persia. Xerxes marks a turning point about the midway of the Persian Empire because Xerxes is going to go try to conquer the rest of Europe and he's not going to succeed. And so really as the Medo-Persian Empire begins to decline and Greece begins to rise, these are the settings for the story of Esther. I'll talk more about the battles next week or, or maybe in the text in just a minute. The story of Esther itself is written around the motif of banquets. 
So the story's going to open in a minute, and there's going to be a banquet. And then you're going to turn, and then there's going to be a banquet. And then in a few minutes, chapters later, they're going to be having a banquet. And then there's going to be another banquet after that. And then the book's going to end with everybody's having a big banquet. So it's written around the motif of banquets, and you'll, you'll see the recurring theme. Uh, all of this story of Esther is wrapped up in male-female relationships. Really, the tension between husband and wife and the tension between male-female relationships when the story opens in a few minutes, or really next week, I'll get more into it, all the beautiful virgins of the kingdom are taken into the harem of Xerxes as he searches for a wife. And Esther alone uh, emerges as the one who pleases the king with her sensuous beauty. And then her uncle uh, foils a plot to assassinate Xerxes, and this family is thrust into the limelight uh, in court, in the ruling palace of Medo-Persia. The major theological point is that God always keeps his covenant promises. God's people cannot be wiped out. Now history tries. You just go back and look. There's a lot of moments where Pharaoh tries and King Herod tries and Nebuchadnezzar tries and uh, Haman tries and uh, Hitler tries and uh, 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 there's a lot of moments in history where God's people are, are, are suffering through a holocaust. But that's never going to succeed because God's people can't be wiped out and the Bible story come to its fulfillment. God's already promised what he's going to do. And so you're going to see it play out. Here the Jews are going to face a holocaust. And you're going to wonder, are God's people going to survive? They're going to survive because God's going to intervene he always does. You say, well, they've been disobedient, went after idols. Yes, that is true also. But God in his long-suffering, in his uh, said love, in his magnanimous kindness, is going to reach out to his people and say, I will not let you be annihilated. Even though you've broken your promises to me, I won't break my promises to you. Watch how faithful I'll be. The book of Esther, the story contained in this book, is so powerful that the Nazis forbade the reading of the book of Esther in the crematoria and in the concentration camps of Auschwitz, Dachau, and Treblinka. They forbade its reading. Say why? Because it's a story of you can't wipe God's people out. They forbade the reading in the crematoria and the concentration camps. And so what happened is the Jews who were in the concentration camps knew the story so well that they wrote it by memory and they read it in the concentration camps to keep hope alive that God would save his people. We know in ancient times that God cared for his people and I guess I need to overlay now some forward thinking onto you. The question we're going to have as we go through the story is does God still act on behalf of his new covenant people? I mean, we have the record and we have the Bible to look back and say, look, God's always cared for his people. It wasn't always easy. Sometimes it was disastrous. But look how God made it all work out. The question is, what about going forward now into our modern history where we sit this morning? Does God still act on behalf of his new covenant people? We are those new covenant people, not Israel. We are the new Israel, all of those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. 
and you are the new covenant people, the question we have is when we're reading the Bible, does this God still act for us and care for us and love us the way that he's displaying here on the pages of the Old Testament? Well, let's get right to the story. Here's, here's what happened. Esther chapter 1, verse 1, this is what happened during the time of Xerxes, the Xerxes who ruled 127 provinces, stretching from India to Cush. At that time, Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet to all of his nobles and officials. Here's what I want you to call attention to these next three words. The military leaders are who's at the banquet. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. And for a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. And when these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace. For all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. So now you've got it. All the people who are the rulers of the 127. It's a huge empire. It's like 127 different people, groups, and countries he rules over. He's brought them all in. He's got all of his big wigs, uh, joint chiefs of staff, the heads of the military. uh, And and what's happening really is a military thing. And I'll show you that in just a moment. Verse 8. And by the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions. For the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. Now let me give you a little background to what you've read. The historian Herodotus said that Xerxes was, and I quote, the tallest, most handsome of the Persian kings. He was ruthless as a ruler, he was brilliant as a warrior, and he was jealous as a lover. When the book of Esther opens, Xerxes is displaying all of his glory, all of his majesty, self-promoting. Now he's self-promoting for a reason. He's trying to pull together 127 provinces to go to war. He's trying to unify his people and get everybody's support for an invasion of Greece. He wants to march on Europe. His dad tried, but his dad died, and before his dad could invade Greece. Now the son, Xerxes, says, I'm going to go finish what my father started. I'm going to mount an invasion of Europe, Greece being the emerging power, and we're going to go crush them with our combined armies. But I need to solidify all of my leaders and all of my warriors. And what you're reading in Esther chapter number 1 is what's recorded in history as the War Council of 483 B.C. 483 B.C., War Council. He calls all of his people together and says, let's develop a battle plan, let's develop a strategy for invasion of Europe, and let's go crush Greece, and let's unite our support together. Verse 10. And on the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him... Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abigtha, Zether, and Karkath. He said, I want you guys to go, verse 11, bring Queen Vashti. Bring her down here to the war council. I'm trying to dog and pony show all of these drunk military leaders and 
princes of the provinces. And I'm trying to amaze them with what a glorious leader I am and why they need to throw their support behind me. And I think we're about to close the deal. So to close the deal, go get Queen Vashti and tell her to put on the royal diadem, the crown, in order to display her beauty to the people and the nobles, for she was lovely to look at. Now, history, history concurs with this. Uh, Vash, uh, Vashti is the granddaughter of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, the kingdom that was conquered previously. And on a scale of 1 to 10, she's a 10. That's what's recorded in history. The stunning Vashti in her royal beaded gown with her diadem on her head rolling into the banquet hall to display the beauty of Vashti was really the ultimate living trophy of King Xerxes. And he says, I think we can close the deal if we get the queen. If everybody sees her, they'll say, yeah, let's throw our support behind this guy. She'll close the deal for me. Now, further information from Greek historian Herodotus. You're wondering about the drinking and the battle plan and, and, and calling for the queen. Here's what you need to know about the Medo-Persians. I'm quoting now from the Greek historian. Herodotus explains that the Persians drank excessively when they de deliberated matters of state. Maybe the U.S. Congress should take this up. I quote, Moreover, it is their custom to deliberate about the gravest matters when they are drunk. And what they approve in their war councils, in their councils, is proposed to them the next day by the master of the house when they are now sober. And if they, being sober, still approve of the plan they made when they were drunk, they will act hereon. But if when they hear the plan, now being sober, and they cast the plans aside, they will take counsel about writing a plan when sober, and then they'll have it read back while they are drunk and see if they still approve it. That's right out of the history book, okay? And you're like, that's the most bizarre thing I've ever heard of. Uh, well, maybe you, maybe you want to recreate Medo-Persia, where all the leaders get plastered, okay? And they're drawing up in a battle council how to go to war against Greece, against Europe, and they're, they're well drunk by now. They've, the mass, they've got somebody writing out what they're deliberating. They come back tomorrow when they're sober, read it back to them and see if they still agree. And then somebody says, I want to amend that. I don't think that one thing is really good. Let's do And then they amend it, and they get drunk, and they get sober, and they get drunk. And that's the plan. This is how they do things in Medo-Persia. Now, it's quite bizarre to us, but the ancients believed that intoxication put you closer in touch with the spiritual world. And the king was regarded as a god. And going to war, you always went to war only under good omens, you know, you had to make sacrifices and you had to make sure the gods approved before you could go to war. And so getting drunk in the war council this way is the way that put them in touch with the spirit world before the invasion of Greece. Let's close the deal. Xerxes says, I want you to go get Queen Vashti and bring her down here. And I want to parade her beauty before all of these. I mean, they've been on a bender for seven days at least. I want to bring her down here into the hall and have her parade around on the stage and let's seal the deal. And when they sent word up, uh, seven eunuchs go to get her out of her chamber. And, sh and she hears that she's been summoned to 
use her sex as a weapon against these guys to close the deal, Queen Vashti says, no way am I going down to that hall filled with drunken military leaders and parade around so that my husband can seal the deal to go to war against Europe. No way. That is not a safe environment for a woman of my standing to go into uh, at this situation in the hall. And so the refusal of the queen to appear at the war council was a big deal. The king is trying to solidify everybody. And what happens now is extremely embarrassing for Xerxes, who's all about ego. He's embarrassed in front of the men. And he's like, how can I get all these drunken leaders to unify and okay my war plans if I can't even get my wife to show up at the banquet? That's what's going through his head. I read now from verse 12. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. And the king became furious and burned with anger. Verse 6. Then Mamukin, he's over the harem. Then Mamukin replied in the presence of the king and the nobles and said, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but against all the nobles. Matter of fact, she's, what she's done is against all the people of all the provinces of King Xerxes. Now watch the men just completely implode here. Uh, these are big military generals and they're so offended by this woman that the, 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 you know, it's like a black hole about to suck the planet into it. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women and so they will despise their husbands saying King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought for him but she would not come. This very day the Persian and the Median women of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct, they will respond in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. Does anybody think this is a slight overreaction? 19. Therefore, if it please the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written the laws of Persian media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter in the presence of King Xerxes. They're banishing her from court. Okay? Also, let the king give her royal position to someone else who is what? Better. Find a wife that's better than this one. Then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all the vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. So the king sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom to each province in its own script, and to each people in their own language, 127 countries he rules. And here's the proclamation. Proclaiming that every man should be the ruler over his own household using his native tongue. Now I want you just to lock on to that last sentence right there. So the ruler of the world sends an edict to all of his kingdom and says men shall rule over their household. This is an edict of the king. Now, interestingly, the edict of the pagan king Xerxes is the only time anywhere in your Bible where a man is commanded to rule over his home. It's going to get worse, okay? So, everybody just stay with me a minute. It's the only time in a Bible, a Protestant Bible, where a man is commanded to rule over his home. 
And I want to ask you brilliant people a question because you're good theologians. Does anyone here think the Christian church in 2022 should be structuring our theology and our marriages according to the egomaniacal edicts of King Xerxes of the Persian court circa 480 B.C.? Yeah. You say, but it's in a Bible. Yeah, it's in a Bible quoting a pagan king who's a nut job. That's what you've got to get. It's not in a Bible saying you need to adopt this. In our conservative churches, when you get to a series on the book of Esther, it definitely takes a biased uh, delivery. Queen Vashti has been derided as a rebellious wife who would not submit to her husband's rule by generations of pastors. I read all of their sermons just the past two weeks in preparation for this. Uh, Vashti is derided as a rebellious wife who will not submit to the rule of her husband, and because she would not submit to the rule of her husband, he went and found a better wife called Esther. Now, uh, let me just show you how messed up this is. That's not the teaching of the book of Esther. Martin Luther actually typified, because he was a misogynist, he typified the misrepresentation of Vashti, and he did it in an illustration where he was uh, defending divorce, strangely enough. I'm quoting now Martin Luther, the reformer. The third case for divorce is that in which one of the parties deprives and avoids the other, refusing to fulfill the conjugal duty or to live with the other person. Here, it is time for the husband to say, if you will not, then another will. We're talking about conjugal duty, just in case you lost the subject of the sentence. If the wife will not, another will. If you will not, the maid will come, even if the wife will not come. Only first the husband should admonish and warn his wife two or three times and let the situation be known to others around him so that her stubbornness becomes a matter of common knowledge and is rebuked before the congregation. If she still refuses, get rid of her. Take an Esther and let Vashti go as King Xerxes did also. I can assure you this morning that the thesis of the book of Esther is not how to get rid of your wife and find a better one. And yet that's what we heard growing up in our conservative churches. They didn't say it that way, but that's what they were saying. They were echoing Martin Luther. That is a blatant weaponization of Scripture against women. Blatant weaponization. The author who wrote the book of Esther, we don't not sure who it is, but the author who wrote the book of Esther uses this battle of the sexes between Vashti and Xerxes as the scene opens to paint a picture of life in the Persian court. The king holds tremendous power. And his words are the power of life and death. But he uses his power only to reinforce his own glory and his own majesty. He has no thought for how it affects the people around him. The consequences to others are of no regard to him. 
And what the author is trying to get you to see is that if you're in the court of Medo-Persia, the odds are stacked against you that you're going to survive for very long. You say, can you prove it? Yeah, 20 years later, the captain of the guard assassinates Xerxes because he's a monster. You don't survive long in the Persian court. It's, it's that kind of place. Now, the story of the book of Esther is a story about the reversal of fortunes. How those seeking power have the tables turned on them. This is what the book of Esther, you'll see the subplots as we go. It's how the male-led, misogynistic Persian leaders were outwitted by a prom queen. You hear what I'm saying? The, the superpower of the world and all of the leaders of Persia were outmaneuvered and outwitted by a beauty queen named Esther who's coming later in the story. That's quite a twist, isn't it? Vashti, when she refused to go to the king's banquet, never, refu- never considered, she never thought in a million years, that her refusal to come to the banquet would result in another woman becoming queen of Persia. And yet her no decision to Xerxes set in motion the entire events, ten chapters of the book of Esther on how God saved his people and reversed everyone's fortune. Plot twist, plot twist, plot twist. Get ready for it. They're going to twist all over the place in the next few weeks. You say, how did all that get set in motion? Because the queen refused to show up at the king's war council and it set in motion a series of events that God would use to fulfill his covenant promise and care for his people. The storyline of the book of Esther is held in tension between two queens, two women. One queen refuses to show up when she is summoned. The other queen shows up when she is not invited. And both are problematic because both women are trying to make decisions for their, their, themselves, independent of any male. And when a woman makes independent decisions, it's problematic for someone like Xerxes and for the leaders of Persia. The psychotic king and all of his misogynistic advisors and the executives of the Southern Baptist Convention are all terrified that if a woman has her own agency, then all women everywhere will create chaos in the divine order and the planet will implode into cataclysmic fire and brimstone. The world will fly off its axis and we'll crash into the sun. Now, the Southern Baptist Convention just met at the National Convention for the last three days. And this is what they debated for three days. Here is our present brokenness. Christianity in America is not discussing the gospel. We're not discussing how to reach our communities. We're not discussing the brokenness of our churches and how to get disciple-making going again in the house of God. No, we're embroiled on how to deal with the cover-up of sexual abuse by the leaders of our denomination and the leaders of our churches. Millions of dollars in donations have now been spent in payoffs, in studies, in reports, in in research, and and, uh, how how to deal with the cover-up, how to uncover the cover-up, 
what are we going to, what are we, are we going to apologize to women at any point along, they actually debated this last week, if they would apologize to the victims of sexual abuse that the men in the room had abused the women. They actually debated last week, are they going to throw Saddleback Church, one of the best churches in America, Rick Warren's church, out of the Southern Baptist Convention because he ordained three women last year. And that somehow might spin the world off its axis. So we want to dethrone, we want to kick them out of the Southern Baptist Convention. We're, this is what we're debating while the world's going to hell. Okay? So I just want you to understand the brokenness of the situation that we find ourselves in. And the issue that keeps rising to the forefront, you're, you were about five years ahead of it. The issue that keeps rising to the forefront is how are the churches going to respond to the female majority that exists in every congregation who are wondering how they fit into the ministry of their church. This is the issue that's going to keep coming up until we get the right answer put out there. Christian women want to know what exactly is our standing in the body of Christ. And until we can come together and answer that question. Now we've answered it here. And I'll answer it again in a few minutes. But until the larger Baptist can answer the question, because what's tied to this question is what you do with abuse of authority, abuse of power, uh, uh, sexual abuse, physical abuse. It's all tied to the same question. And we keep either avoiding it nationally or getting the wrong answer put forth. Now here's what I want to say to the Cornerstone people and all of you who are listening around the world. As you hear voices... Speaking on these issues, please do not be dismissive. I watched a host of pastors this week on Facebook be dismissive and say, just the men need to lead and the women need to move. And the Bible says, the Bible doesn't say what you're saying. You're lying. There's only one place in the Bible where it says, rule your, you're commanded to rule your home. And it's a pagan king, Xerxes, who's in a drunken war council. And it's, yeah, you get it. And I know what you're going to say. Well, what about the qualifications for Pat? We'll talk about it, but that's not what it says. Okay? As you hear the voices talking about this, do not be dismissive. Saying, I believe the Bible and it's always been this way, that's not a good answer. Just because something's always been wrong doesn't mean we need to keep perpetrating the wrong. At some point, we need to make some decisions. And we've come to a historic moment in America and the religious world in America where it's now keeps being pushed to the forefront of the churches and it's all the headlines are going to be about until we get it right and I urge you to be on the right side of history. Jesus told us in the New Testament that marriage was broken. Let me read it for you. Some Pharisees came to test Jesus and they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife, watch the wording, for any and every reason now the way they were practicing marriage in israel in this day was the men had all the power the woman couldn't file for divorce the man could file for divorce and he could file for divorce for any and every reason which means it was a no-fault divorce you just walk in and say i find uncleanness in my wife you know off with your head that's it it just you could just get rid of your wife like that in israel and so they come to jesus and they say here's what culturally we practice is this lawful? Verse 4. Haven't you read? He replied that in the beginning of the Creator made them male and female. And said for this reason a man will leave his father and mother. 
and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. Now, let's cut through all the nonsense and let me in my few minutes just give it to you straight, okay? Does the Bible allow for divorce? Yes. Clearly, divorce is mentioned many times in the Scriptures. In Deuteronomy 22 and 24, Moses gave a bill of divorcement and told them how they could have a legal divorce and dissolve a marriage. God even goes so far to use that language with Israel. He says, you're my bride, you're my, you know, you're my wife. And then he says in Jeremiah uh, chapter 3 verse 8, I gave faithless Israel a certificate of divorce and I sent her away because of all of her adulteries. Same language God used with Israel. He said, all you do is cheat on me, I'm done. I'm going to divorce you. Now, listen to what I'm saying. I'm not saying divorce should be the model. I'm not saying you enter into marriage with a, with a, 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 a lazy, fair, blasé attitude and say, well, we'll just try it. If it doesn't work out, we'll just dissolve it. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm not saying divorce is the model. I'm showing you that because of sin, our relationships are broken. God designed one thing in the beginning, and because of sin, we've got a different thing. If you can just get this much, God designed one thing, and because of our sin, we now have a different thing. God designed one thing in marriage, and what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, in the beginning it was not so. It was this way, but now we've got a whole different mess on our hands right now. Divorce was not God's original design for marriage, but it's now a part of our reality. At least 50% of us, it's going to be a part of our reality. And really, it's 100% of us because our kids or our parents are going to be divorced. If 50% of people are divorced, it's either your parents, you, or your kids. It's going to touch your family. And so it is our present reality. It's not God's choice. It's not God's design. But I would say this. If this is the present reality you're living, and it is for almost all of us, I challenge you just to ask God for forgiveness and say, God, I messed that up. This is what sin did to me. Made me a jerk that's hard to live with. Or vice versa, you know jerk at whatever and uh and and we couldn't get it worked out and god because of our sin here's where we are and i want to repent of my sin and you confess and you ask for god's forgiveness and now you try to build a marriage that looks like what god intended try to find a way forward relational issues are the hardest issues they're far more complicated than any other thing we talk about because there are often children involved gets really really complicated and the only solution to your reality is to repent of your sins, find a way forward, and go try to build a relationship, a marriage, a home like the one Jesus would have you build. Jesus said, I got it, marriage is broken. But let's go back and remember what the original model of marriage was. I'm going all the way back to the beginning now, Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image 
in our likeness so that they may rule, that's a key word, over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over the livestock, over all the wild animals and over the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Let me see if I can summarize. God's design for humanity was two clear gender distinctions. Male and female. The man and the woman were both created in the image of God. Not man, man and woman, mankind, humans were created in the image of God. The man and the woman shared the same profession of ruling over God's creation and imaging God. They have the same authority. The first couple had close companionship in their marriage. They had sexual freedom, which they expressed inside their marriage. Their marriage allowed for the procreation of the human race or reproduction. Their relationship was one of equality. The Bible continuously refers to them as one. Human beings were made to rule planet earth and all the animal kingdom. The food was free. The food was plenteous. Life was very good. They were happy. They were healthy. They were holy. They were spiritual. They were sexual. They were beautiful. They were intellectual. So the big question is, what went wrong? I mean, here's the utopia I've just described. What went wrong? Well, that was Genesis 1. We just turn a leaf and we're in Genesis 3. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God did say, you must not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it or you will die. Serpent. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband. You say, why? Because he's right there the whole time with her, who was with her, and he ate of it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. And they realized they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Here's where sin enters into the story. God is about to show up in the garden. God shows up and has a conversation now with three different parties. Verse 14, so the Lord God said to the serpent, party number one, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. God's about to speak to the woman. So the Lord God said to the woman, to the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband. He will rule over you. I'm going to read it from the ESV version. 
To the woman he said, I will multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be, say it, contrary to your husband. But he shall rule over you. I'm going to read it from the NLT. Then he said to the woman, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy, and in pain you will give birth. And you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate the fruit of the tree which I command you not to, curse it is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from the ground all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground. From it you were taken and dust to dust you're going to return. Now I really think that everything I've set up to now hinges on this passage. It seems to always come back to Genesis chapter number 3. When Jesus was asked about the state of marriage he said it's broken sent them right back to Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3 to see what happened in the beginning. Seems like the conversation always ends up here. Now what we have to ask ourselves this morning is one question, one thinking person's question. Are you ready? Is this passage prescriptive or predictive? And how you answer this question is going to determine what your church is going to look like in the next 50 years. Is this passage predictive or prescriptive? In other words, prescriptive answers the question, what does God require? What does God want us to do? What does he require us to do? Uh, uh, predictive answers the question, so now what's going to happen? And you have to decide if Genesis chapter number 3 is prescriptive or predictive you have to understand and try to figure out is God saying this is what we now have to do or is God saying this is now what's going to happen I have an opinion surprise uh, I have an opinion I believe that no reasonable person could believe that verses 14 to 19 of Genesis chapter 3 are prescriptive. I just don't think any honest person can say these are prescriptive. For example, God said by the sweat of your brow, you're going to till the ground to get your food. So, surely you don't think that God is saying you must sweat in order to be in his will. Otherwise, it would be sinful to plow with a horse or a tractor or a team of oxen. While you're making it simpler, you're circumventing the toil. Much less one of those big tractors, you know, that you stack those plows like as wide as a football field. And it's got an air conditioner inside. And you're, you're in there listening to your to, you know, George Strait while you're plowing the red dirt. And I'm sure there's a country song there somewhere. Oh, yeah, it's probably a big green tractor, isn't it? Yeah, that's probably what it is. So you're saying plowing with a tractor would be circumventing God's will for our lives? That's just frankly ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. If you believe that, we can turn off the AC this morning and we'll help all of you find the will of God 
in 105 degrees. You can sweat here together next Sunday morning. We'll just turn off the air. And you can say, well, we're just really suffering for Jesus, trying to find his will and, and toil and, and sweat. Well, for example, God said that you ladies would have pain in childbirth. Surely you don't think that God is saying you must have pain in childbirth. The more pain, the better. The more pain, the holier. The more pain, the more penance you've done for Eve's sin. Surely you don't think that getting an epidural is sinful and you're holier if you go natural than if you get meds. Surely you're not saying that this morning because I would find that frankly ridiculous, completely ludicrous. If you hold that these verses are prescriptive, then you would have to live as Amish do in order not to be a hypocrite. That's the only way you could do this. And clearly you don't agree with being Amish or you'd be Amish. Clearly you want to drive a car and have an air conditioner. And most of you are not farming your food anyway. You're farming at, at, at Kroger. Uh, and you're just getting your vegetables right out of the bin. And you're not sweating at all. Even Kroger is air conditioned. And you drive in an air conditioned car to go to an air conditioned store to get your food. And you're like, yeah, but I work for the money. I know you do, but you're missing the point, I'm afraid. God is not demanding that Adam rule over Eve. God is saying, this is what's going to happen. Your relationships are now broken. God is not saying you men are required to rule over the women. See, she ate that fruit. She, she can't be trusted with making decisions. You've got to be kidding. Surely you don't believe that. Or maybe you do. God is not saying that men are required to rule over women and women must take it as a form of penance because all women everywhere in all of history must pay for Eve's sin. You guys don't believe that. You believe that Jesus died on the cross to pay for all of our sin not every woman has to suffer to pay off Eve's sin. That would go against everything you believe theologically. Are you all still with me? Okay. Verses 14 to 19 of Genesis 3 are clearly predictive of what would happen to humanity now that sin has entered into the conversation. God is simply saying these are the consequences of what sin will now do to humanity and to relationships, your lives are forever changed by rebelling against me. By seizing authority and rebelling against God, you have no idea the depth of destruction you have caused. I designed something beautiful for you, and now this is what you're going to have. It's, you're going to be against him, and he's going to be against you, and you're going to try to dominate him, and he's going to try to dominate you, and this is what's going to happen. And because he's physically stronger in most cases, he's going to succeed in subjugating you, this is what I predict. Sin wreaks havoc on everything good that you have enjoyed, especially your relationship. So now because of sin, we are at enmity, you and I, with God, and we have to be reconciled back into a relationship. We have to be redeemed, to be bought back, brought back into a relationship with God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Now, because of sin, there's enmity between the animal kingdom and humanity that did not exist prior to this sin. 
Now, because of sin, there's no more free 24-hour buffet. Now you have to labor hard to bring food to market. Now, because of sin, marriage relationships are broken. God predicted it. He predicted the male subjugation of women as a part of the curse upon fallen humanity. Adam and Eve were created as equals. And now because of sin, the stronger is going to dominate the weaker. Because of sin, human history is about now the stronger nations dominating the weaker nations. It's about empires of might, Persia, Greece, Babylon, Rome. Whoever's got the biggest, strongest army of the moment invades the neighbor and does whatever. You're watching it play out right now in Ukraine. The strong invades the weak, supposedly, and has imposes their will upon the continent. That's what he thought was going to play out anyway. We'll see how it all plays out. That's what we've been doing for 6,000 years. This is sin at its finest. What follows are six millennia of broken relationships and broken marriages that do not look like the one that God originally designed. Men ruling over women is part of the curse of sin. In the kingdom of God that you and I are in, to live in the kingdom of God is to reverse the curse. You're to be modeling something different. You're in the kingdom of God. You're not to be modeling the same old brokenness the world's been modeling for 6,000 years. This is the whole Sermon on the Mount's about. You're to be loving your neighbor as yourself and doing unto others as you'd have them do unto you and uh, loving people and helping the poor and taking care of the widow and treat your wife right and treat your husband right and treat your children right. The clear message from the first chapter of Esther is this. If you have to demand respect and obedience from your wife, you are worthy of neither. Xerxes is not being held up to you as a role model. He's being held up to you as a drunken maniac. Okay? A drunken maniac who is completely off the wall and unpredictable and will kill anybody and everybody. And I'll tell you more about that next week, how, what a loose cannon he really is. We're not following Xerxes this morning. We're following the edicts of Jesus Christ. In the New Testament, it says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. The chapter opens with, submit yourselves one to another for Jesus' sake. This is what we're modeling in the New Covenant and in the New Testament church. I close with a bit of mixed news. The Bible records many leaders that are not worthy of the power that they had. This is, I'm just being honest with you. And I've given you now 18 weeks of honest assessment of Old Testament characters. The Bible records many leaders who had power and they were not worthy of the power they held. Even Israel's greatest king, David, used his power for rape and for murder. I'll talk about that in some coming weeks. The state of the Christian church right now is that we are sadly not immune to the misuse of power by spiritual leaders. It's in the Baptist denomination, it's in the Pentecostal denomination, it's in the Catholic denomination, it's in every denomination. The question or the statement that goes with that is simply this. If you'll abuse your power 
and demand respect and submission of your own wives, then what further misuse of power might we expect from you? I think the answer is absolute power corrupts absolutely. I think that's the answer. So God's speaking to our hearts this morning because in our own marriages here this morning, it's sometimes conflict, sometimes. In our own relationships here this morning, we have conflict and what we need to clearly say this morning is to, to really to repent or to confess your sins means to agree with God. So let's agree with God. Sin caused this. Who sinned? I want to say her sin. <laughs> but the right answer would be to get the mirror out and say this morning, my sin caused this. If you have conflict in your marriage, I'm going to ask you to own at least half of it this morning. I think that's fair in most of our relationships for you to say at least half of this is my sinful problem. It's my stubbornness and my, my hard-heartedness causes at least half of this conflict. Maybe in your home this morning you, you, you deal with some strife and some anger and raised voices and shouting and, and God forbid hitting and maybe intimidation and you're wondering what in the world do we do now? Do we just divorce and try to find a better wife and a better husband? Well, that's an option. I would like to say eventually, but it's not the first step. The first step would be to own my sin and you own your sin and let's see if we could find a way to repent of our sin together and reverse the curse in our own homes and say, God, we want you to build here what you imagined from the beginning where I love her like you love me and she loves me like you love her and and God, we, we, we have a house built on love and mutual respect. But I think it all begins this morning with each of us owning our own junk. I really do. I, we need to, listen, there's some men in the room, you need to own your chauvinism. And you need to repent of it. And maybe there's some women in the room and your goal in life is to dominate the men. You need to repent of that. Works both ways. Mutual submission, mutual love. Find forgiveness with God, then make the best decisions we can make to move forward. Maybe this morning's just a moment for you to start over. Maybe you're single and you're just trying to find a way forward. Okay, here's a good platform to start on. Maybe you're married and you've got some issues. Okay, maybe we need to start over with our mates this morning because really that's what Esther chapter 1 is about. Let's find a way to be not like them. Let's find a way to be like what God wants us to be like, his covenant people. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Let's just have a moment of decision before we go have lunch with our families. I want you to take what you've heard this morning and I want you to begin to figure out what God's saying to your heart about the decision you need to make. Maybe you're just a little harsh, a little sharp. Maybe that's where things are right now. Or maybe there's bigger conflict than that. Can we find a way forward this morning from where we are? And it begins by owning our own sin.
and saying to God, God, if I haven't been the kind of husband or God, if I haven't been the kind of wife, Lord, help me to realize those areas right now and confess them and find a way forward. Let me remind you this morning, there's nothing that God doesn't already know about you. And yet he still loves you this morning. And the most transformational power is not your love for God, it's God's love for you. Part of what the Christian life is about is rewiring that brain of yours, letting the Holy Spirit transform you to bring your thinking in line with the Scriptures. Let this mind be in you which was in Christ. And maybe there's just some deep-seated things in you that need to be rewired. You tell the Lord that this morning. Tell the Holy Spirit right now, Holy Spirit, I yield to you. Whatever's in my heart and my mind that's, that's wrong, I want you to rewire me for good. Uh, I want you to transform my thinking so that I learn to think in accordance with the mind of Jesus Christ. I know most of you fairly well, and I know you have homes that are filled with love. You're worshiping this morning with your children and your parents and your brothers and sisters. You're surrounded by a wonderful family. I want you to take just a few minutes this morning and lift them in prayer. And thank God for a dad and a mom that love the Lord. Thank God for brothers and sisters and kids that love the Lord. Maybe you have the most wonderful wife and husband in the whole world. God bless you. I pray that's true of everyone in the room. Ask God just to wrap his arms around your marriage this morning, pull you up close, and just keep, keep the joy and the bliss right where it is. It doesn't have to be otherwise. It doesn't need to be conflict. Love doesn't need to hurt. It doesn't need to be painful. Thank God for the beautiful thing he's done in your life. This morning, if you found your way into the house of God and you have never received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you believe he is the Son of God. You believe he came and died on the cross for the sins of mankind. But maybe you never have personally articulated your faith to God and asked him to forgive you of your sins. I want to give you a moment to do that before we go home. If you're saying, Pastor, I'm not exactly sure what to say to God. He knows that. I'll give you a little bit of a form to follow, but just take my words and just make it your own as you pray this morning. Pray like this. Dear God, I confess to you that I'm a sinner. I, I can't save myself. And I believe you are the Savior of the world. I believe you're the Son of God who died on the cross, was buried and rose again to be my Savior. I believe what you did on the cross was sufficient to pay for my sins and secure my forgiveness and bring me into a relationship with God. So this morning, I ask you to forgive me of my sins. Wash me and cleanse me. I put my faith and my trust in you. And I invite you to come into my life and into my heart and be the Lord and Savior of my life. From this moment, I call you King, Lord, 
Savior of my life. I am yours. And all that I have is yours. Fill me now with your Holy Spirit. And help me, Lord, to live for you all the rest of my life. Thank you for loving me and thank you for saving me today. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. Let's pray. Let's go to the house. You remember to pray for us tomorrow as we go to Mexico City and train these pastors over the next few days. We'll be back about midweek. Hope that God blesses your week richly. Father, bless your people now as we go to our homes. Lord, thank you for your word that challenges us. Lord, that really makes us think and consider where we are and what our attitudes are and what our wiring is. God, I pray that today you would take these words and let it be transformative to all who have heard your word today. God, thank you for this wonderful body that you've brought together. Protect us. Bless us, Lord, for those who are going to go to the beach and to the mountains and to the lake this week. God, bless them, protect them, oversee them, Lord. Let it be a time of refreshing and renewal as we take our vacations. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you. Happy Father's Day.